Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is the 15th of July, 2013 today, aka the third Monday of the month, and that means it is time for film literature and the New World Order. And as promised last month, this month's edition is going to be centering on the 1998 Hollywood flick, a Jerry Bruckheimer production, Enemy of the State, and I hope it will not take too much elaboration for those of you out there who have taken the time to watch this movie or have seen it in the past, exactly why I've chosen this movie to review at this particular time, but just to make it all very, very explicit, of course this movie centers around the revelations, quote-unquote, that's coming from NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, and more importantly, all of the previous NSA and telecom whistleblowers of the past decade, which is revealing and centering on the spying grid that has been constructed carefully over the past at least couple of decades, and was remarkably, some would say almost miraculously, foretold in this 1998 movie, shortly after the existence of the National Security Agency itself was actually officially admitted. Of course, people who are familiar with the NSA and its history know that for much of its history, for much of its first uh, few decades of existence, it was not officially even confirmed by the government to exist, thus creating its uh, well-known, or formerly well-known moniker, No Such Agency for NSA. But uh, then shortly after it was revealed to exist, they went into production of Enemy of the State, this, well, remarkable Hollywood thriller talking and and documenting in precise detail how people who know too much can be hunted down by an Orwellian spy grid that most people don't even know exists. And in fact, when the movie came out, uh, most of the audience probably thought it was the stuff of ridiculous sci-fi fantasy. But now, as we have had confirmed in triplicate, triplicate, quadruplicate, or quintuplicate over the past decade by numerous whistleblowers, this movie is all too close to reality. So let's start getting into some of the nuts and bolts of this movie, and first we'll start by... Uh, if not summarizing the plot, at least taking a look at some of the key scenes. Uh, For example, of course, the opening scene, which establishes the plot, is extremely important to all of the action that comes uh, later on in the movie and helps explain the sort of basis, the the MacGuffin, if you will, for the, the chain of events that sets into motion. The, f- the film proper. And this scene revolves around a, a rogue NSA operative by the name of Thomas Reynolds, who is att- attempting to convince, cajole, or otherwise coerce a congressman into voting for a piece of telecoms legislation, which we are led to understand is a complete abrogation of the Fourth Amendment right to freedom from search and seizure that's, of course, hardwired into the U.S. Bill of Rights. And in this scene, we start to see that this is a uh, a key piece of this puzzle and that NSA operative Thomas Reynolds is not one of the good guys. Want some coffee? No, I don't want any coffee. I want to play with my dog. Look, I'm not asking you to vote for it. I know you can't. Just release your people. Let them go the way they want. Telecommunications Security and Privacy Act. Invasion of privacy is more like it. You read the post? This bill is not the first step to the surveillance society. It is the surveillance society. A lot of liberal hysteria. Oh, listen, I'm not going to sit in Congress and pass a law that lets the government point a camera and a microphone at anything they damn well please. Phil? Look, I don't care who bangs who, what cabinet officers get stoned, but this is the richest, most powerful nation on earth. And therefore the most hated. And you and I know what the average citizen does not, that we are at war 24 hours of every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Do I have to itemize the number of American lives we've saved in the past 12 months alone with judicious use of surveillance intelligence? Thomas, cut the crap. I've got three major employers in the Syracuse area alone who are going to get just killed by this bill. I promise to get you funds equal to or greater than whatever those companies gave your last campaign. I'm not talking about campaign contributions, damn it. I'm talking about my constituents being out of work. Jesus, man, wake up. National security isn't the only thing going on in this country. This conversation is over. I beg of you, Phil, please don't. I've been there for you in the past, haven't I? There have been times, personal situations, when you needed my assistance and my confidence. Are you blackmailing me, you ambitious shit? I'm sorry. You can't find a common ground on this one, Congressman. You're a good man. People of your district are lucky to have you representing them. And so one of the rogue NSA operatives, henchmen, goes on to kill the congressman, which is, unbeknownst to them, caught on tape. And that becomes the central plot, uh, part of the plot. And, of course, the, the rest of the film is dedicated to the NSA operatives trying to track down that tape and, uh, and acquire it. Meanwhile, it's fallen into the possessions, unbeknownst to the protagonist of the film, of Richard Dean, a lawyer, Washington, D.C.-based uh, labor lawyer, who is completely uh, unaware of the whole situation and the fact that he's caught up in it until he's already starting to be hunted down by these NSA operatives. As it turns out, his wife just happens to be an, a lawyer for the ACLU who is deeply concerned about this Telecommunications Security and Privacy Act. Ah, uh, well, there goes the Fourth Amendment. What's left of it? Hey, Maria. Hello, Mr. Bobby. Don't you honestly doubt the average citizen? Hey, you're about a bark and a half from being homeless. Baby, listen to this fascist gas bag. Freedom and freedom have always existed in a in a very precarious balance, and when buildings start blowing up, people's priorities tend to change. He's got a point there, sweetie. Bobby. I mean, who is this idiot? He is talking about ending personal privacy. Do you want your phone tap? <laughs> I'm not planning on blowing up the country. Well, how do we know until we've heard all your dirty little secrets? You're just going to have to trust me. Oh, I know. We'll just tap the criminals. We won't suspend the civil rights of the good people. Right. Then who decides which is which? I think you should. You know, Bobby, I think you should take this more seriously. Honey, I think you're taking it seriously enough for both of us and half the people on the block. Tens of millions of foreign nationals living within our borders, and many of these people consider the United States their enemy, and they see... Hmm, did you notice that little reference to blowing up buildings, changing people's minds? Well, of course, this movie was out in 1998, so it did come a full three years before 9-11, so surely they can't be talking about those events. I guess they must be talking about the Oklahoma City bombing or something of those that sort. At any rate, uh, of course, that is exactly the debate that is being uh, played out right now in, in front of everyone's face in the mainstream media, talking about security versus privacy and these types of issues, as if there is any sort of balance to be had there, as if one can give up uh, privacy and get security in exchange. Of course, we know that is the fake paradigm, the fake uh, conflict, the fake uh, dialectic that they want to enter the public into to get them to gradually accept this security state. And there it is uh, being fictionalized in this movie that uh, that presages 
is much of what's being talked about in the mainstream media today. Centering, interestingly enough, on this Telecommunications Security and Privacy Act, the details of which we don't know really anything about other than the characterizations of it by the characters in the movie. And of course, the congressman and uh, Richard Dean's wife both seem to think that it is uh, just a blank card carte blanche for the government to commit privacy violations and uh, basically eavesdrop and wiretap on all citizens in a blanket manner. And of course, that is basically what is happening these days, as we now have documented here in some detail. Of course, the NSA does collect all electronic communications flowing through the United States wholesale and stores them indefinitely in their new newly acquired Utah data center. So we do know that this is, in fact, already going on, but uh, they are now giving the motions that they're going to be codifying this further into law, etc. As the need arises based on the outrage over the Snowden revelations, quote unquote. So this is all going on in the headlines today, even as it was predicted by this movie several years ago. And uh, and the Telecommunications and Security Privacy Act, although we don't know the details of it in this movie, perhaps it is somewhat akin to the Communications Assistant for Law Enforcement Act. Uh, which was passed in 1994 and which was really the the infrastructure, the, the legislative infrastructure for hardwiring in that communications spy grid into the very backdoors of the telecoms themselves back in 1994. That was an actual act that was really passed by the U.S. Congress back in 94 and which really paved the way for this entire infrastructure to be implemented. So that's at least work, lo- worth looking into in the context of this movie and this, and this fictional act that they're talking talking about being passed in this 1998 Hollywood movie. But as the plot progresses and the NSA becomes aware that the tape of their misdeeds, of this rogue operative's misdeeds, are in the possession of Richard Dean, they start coming after him and he starts to become aware, at the very least, that he is being targeted by the government, even if he is not exactly aware of why this is happening. And during the course of this adventure, he comes into the, uh, well, he comes under the wing of an ex-NSA, now rogue operative who's working by himself, called Brill who is uh, a technological expert and a a surveillance and counter-surveillance expert who basically, well, he tells Will Smith what's happening in the movie world, which, of course, is, as we know, exactly what's happening in the real world. There it goes. Some kind of simple encryption. Oh, conspiracy theorists of the world unite. That's more of a theory with me. I'm a former conspirer. Yeah, I used to work for the NSA. I was a communication analyst. Listened to international calls, calls from foreign nationals. A GPS tracking device we found in your cellular telephone. I designed one of the first models in that series. Fort Meade has 18 acres of mainframe computers underground. You're talking to your wife on the phone, you use the word bomb, president, Allah, and you have 100 key words. Computer recognizes it, automatically records it, red flags it for analysis. That was 20 years ago. You know the Hubble telescope looks up the stars? They've got over a hundred spy satellites looking down at us. That's classified. In the old days, we actually had to tap a wire into your phone line. Now it calls bouncing off satellites. They snatch them right out of the air. All right, all right. I think we get the point. There is no doubt that the 
this film was remarkably prescient or even had insider knowledge as to what was really going on in the intelligence community, more so than anyone in the average public and even a lot of people who were at that time following the nascent alternative media online would have dreamed possible. And it's extremely interesting to think about how this movie was so accurate about the real state of intelligence concerns. And of course, this is not something that is just uh, uh, noticed by a few people watching this movie. This is pretty much universally commented on these days by viewers of the movie, and one only has to turn to any of the recent posts and and forum threads and the like that have been started in recent weeks since the uh, the Snowden scandal broke wide open. Uh, talking about this movie and how prescient the the people who wrote it are. And I was reading a thread earlier today from a popular online conspiracy site talking about how the writers must have been uh, just really smart to, to know that this was going on. Well, of course, it is not just a question of writers being really smart. It's a question of the producers and uh, the filmmakers being well-connected enough to have actual consultants who really did know what was happening and were working on the inside of all of this. So it's. Uh, I will turn at this point to an extremely important piece of this puzzle – a very revealing making of documentary that was released with the 2006 DVD release of the film. And so this uh, this making of, uh, as far as I can tell, all of the interviews were recorded at the time of the production of the film or shortly thereafter in 1998. But the making of, as far as I know, was not released until that 2006 DVD release. And in that making of, they talk about some of the technical consultants who were used on this, including one technical consultant who was a member of SEAL Team 6, identified as such by one of the uh, the crew members who was advising some of the extras on how the operatives should be running around and battering doors down and the like, which I found interesting because uh, as far as I was aware, I thought SEAL Team 6 was a uh, was supposed to be a secret uh, a team that they, was not revealed to the public until after the Bin Laden raid. But, uh, but there you go, it was already revealed in the Enemy of the State uh, making of documentary. Also, another one of the technical advisors was none other than Mark Loiseau of Controlled Demolition, Inc. And that should ring a bell for any 9-11 truth uh, uh, followers out there who are undoubtedly familiar with Mark Loiseau and his active participation in the official story cover-up of what happened to the buildings on 9-11. Of course, he's been cited by uh, the BBC Conspiracy Files and other uh, documentaries and and, uh, people trying to play down the idea that the uh, the, the Twin Towers and WTC-7 fell from anything other than fires. But uh, but and of course he was also uh, uh, interviewed on the day of 9/11 and uh, in an article that was printed in the Washington Times the next day on September 12th as saying, quote, "When we take down structures with explosives, implosion, if you will, the explosives don't bring down a building; gravity does, and that's exactly what happened today. The airplanes did not bring down the structures; gravity did." Uh, he he also, of course, knows what he's speaking of because the uh, Control Demolition Inc. was also in a, uh, one of the company or the company that was used to blow up and cart away the remains of the Alfred P. Murrah Building in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing. And of course, that didn't happen just uh, just uh, after a, you know a thorough review of the site. That happened 
literally just weeks after the explosion itself. And according to a Washington Times article from May 22nd, 1997, Mark Loiseau actually got the call from officials in Oklahoma within a day of the blast to blow up and cart off the evidence of that particular false flag attack. So Controlled Demolition Inc., an extremely interesting company. And so for those of you who haven't uh, taken a look at it, I will put a link to a very important uh, deep politics forum thread on building a case against Controlled Demolition Inc. that has lots and lots of resources about this company and who they really are. So interesting to see Mark Loiseau being one of the uh, technical advisors to Enemy of the State. But there are others. In fact, uh, a couple of uh, advisors that are worth noting are Marty Kaiser and Steve Urich, who were also interviewed as part of this making of. As I do in all my movies, we go back and we find the real guys, and those real guys are tech advisors. We found two James Bonds, but they don't look like James Bonds, Marty and Steve. They look like um, plumbers or caretakers. (laughs) And they're the oddest, sweetest, strangest guys. And they were great inspiration for ideas for Gene's character. They gave us a script to read initially. When I first read it, I thought they can do a whole lot more with technology than they have. We both went through the script and made a million notes where electronics could make it more interesting. And then it was just rewritten with that in, and I'd do the same thing again and over and over and over. And Closer and closer until you got the shooting script. Say something. Excuse me? Louder. Who are you talking about? That's good. That scenario of bugging the hotel room was extracted from a genuine case I was involved in at the time the movie was being put together. The director, Tony Scott, looked at some videotapes I shared with him of an industrial espionage case I was doing, and he said, that's what I want in the movie. So he built that scene around a genuine listening post. The surveillance devices that you saw Hackman install there are real. They're 100% real. And in fact, some of the footage in the movie actually flowed through the surveillance electronics. It was not generated later on in the studio. That was actual surveillance footage. My character manages to do everything he wants to do with with, um, very low-tech kinds of equipment and he gets by with that. Yeah, we can start with a, a stripped down TV chassis if we have to and bug a room with it. Maybe more effectively than someone that hasn't had the, the experience could do with a whole supermarket full of surveillance gadgets. There are microphones that exist uh, in the world that you just don't think about and the most common one is uh, an ordinary loudspeaker and by adding a, uh, a single one dollar transformer to a loudspeaker You've turned that into an incredibly sensitive microphone, which can be amplified and uh, uh, run into a recorder or a headset. You're transmitting. They still have a signal on you. Your collar, your belt, your zipper. Get rid of your clothes, all of them. And then what am I supposed to do? Nothing. You live another day, I'll be very impressed. That's right, yes. They had actual surveillance experts who provided their expertise in talking about the counter-surveillance and surveillance measures that were used in the film, even drawing from their own experiences wiretapping and bugging people. So who are these experts? Well, one of them was Martin Kaiser. The other was a man named Steve Urig. 
And who are these people exactly? Well, you can find out more about Martin Kaiser at his own website, martykaiser.com, and you can find more specifically about his uh, involvement with Enemy of the State in martykaiser.com slash enemy.htm, which, of course, I'll link up in the show notes. Just reading from the introduction to that page of his website, it says, quote, The idea for the movie Enemy of the State began shortly after the Baltimore Sun Papers printed a six-part Sunday magazine article about the National Security Agency, a.k.a. no such agency. Walt Disney Productions slash Touchstone Pictures saw the article and potential for a picture, but felt that the NSA was one of these agencies that didn't attach to the real people. They put their research division into action and eventually found my website. Years ago, I had sold Disney one of my countermeasure kits, so when executive director Andy Davis called, I assumed it was about the kit. We played phone tag for a while until we finally connected. He told me that he wanted to incorporate my FBI story into the NSA to make a movie. Sounded great. He invited me to California to meet with Jerry Bruckheimer, and the rest is history. End quote. Oh, interesting indeed. So Marty Kaiser has a history with the FBI. Well, yes, in fact, he was a surveillance expert working with the FBI. And interestingly enough, uh, not only did he work with the FBI, but also the CIA, the DEA, the Secret Service, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force Intelligence, as well as foreign intelligence services. And in 1975, he appeared before the National Wiretap Commission uh, testifying about FBI improprieties when it came to their own surveillance uh, capabilities and techniques and uh, operations. And according to Marty Kaiser in uh, the story that he outlines on his own website, which I'll allow you to explore at your leisure, it was perhaps as a result of some vendetta stemming from that 1975 testimony in front of the National Wiretap Commission that the FBI basically attempted to ruin his life and forced him into court for charges uh, of illegal wiretapping and conspiracy and transporting illegal eavesdropping devices across state lines. And this ended up costing him hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees and millions of dollars in lost business and et cetera, et cetera. So basically, he believes he was run into the ground by the FBI as a result of him trying to basically blow the whistle on what the FBI had done in the past with regards to its surveillance techniques. And this became the basis of the idea of enemy of the state, a man who gets on the wrong side of an intelligence agency and gets hunted down like a dog. Obviously fictionalized and given a lot more gloss, but still uh, quite chilling um, in the fictional Hollywood version. So that's at least Marty Kaiser's take on it and where the story originated from, and perhaps we should take that as a with a self-aggrandizing grain of salt, but uh, certainly the fact that Marty and Steve, who was his buddy and a proprietor of SWS Security, and I can't find much about Steve's background with regards to the intelligence agencies, but undoubtedly he had some sort of background, but uh, but they they were both consultants on this script, and uh, the NSA uh, refused actual participation with the film. But according to another website, uh, Steve Urig's website, SWSSEC.com, quote, although the NSA did not give the filmmakers access to its resources or property, the company was able to shoot an aerial establishing shot from public airspace well above the grounds of Fort Meade. For the interior of the NSA, production designer Benjamin Fernandez recreated a control room on a stage that was constructed using verbal information from the technical advisors, as well as several people who used to work at the agency. It was really taking a little bit of information from Steve and Marty, says Scott. They're a pretty closed shop in terms of what information they feel is confidential, even in terms of the look of a room. 
We also used the Baltimore Sun articles for which Steve Urig was a primary consultant. That was really our best form of information in terms of how the place looked to these guys. What we recreated came off as a description from two or three people with, who all corroborated the description, end quote. So they actually used aerial establishing shots of the actual Fort Meade and uh, the NSA headquarters, and they used insider information to construct the interior shots of the NSA. So a lot of information being constru- uh, being given to, to for the look and the feel of the film but uh, what specifically, what types of technologies did uh, the consultants and advisors give the, these uh, filmmakers the inside access to? With the uh, micro technology now, you can put a camera or a microphone anywhere. Buttonhole cameras, there's toothpick microphones. I don't think we didn't actually use that one in the film, but we saw that at the, at the CIA. We're like kind of showing technology that's never been shown before. I mean, I think people are going to watch it and go, wow. They really have that? And you can put cameras just about anywhere. Cameras are, are, are pinhole size. There is no place to hide right now. And the big daddy in this movie is this satellite which rotates around the Earth 155 miles up. I don't know how much the general public know what goes on in the world today, but the world is covered 24 hours a day. They have satellite surveillance of every inch of the Earth. And the resolution on the, on the cameras in those satellites can read uh, the license plate uh, off of uh, a car and also get face recognition. So you could be anywhere in the world. They could uh, focus in on you and, and recognize you. And I thought that was really interesting, making that the third character in the piece. That's right, all that surveillance spy porn that's been shoehorned into this uh, two-hour glorification of the intelligence services, or demonization, perhaps, but uh, that's another reading. But uh, all of that uh, that's been shoehorned in there is the result of these uh, the, the information that the filmmakers came across when consulting with their consultants and with their various contacts. And, oh wait, did... Did you catch what Will Smith said there about, oh yeah, when they went to the CIA and they saw the the toothpick microphones that they didn't end up using in the movie, but that's one of those technologies they were shown. Uh, Excuse me? When when they went to the CIA? Oh yes, that's right. Uh, Actually, yes, the CIA was active in the collaboration on the movie. And in fact, we can pick this up from Tom Secker's website, theexcellentspyculture.com, in a post he has called The Fresh Prince and the CIA. Quote, Another edition of What's News at CIA records how in early 1998, during the filming of Enemy of the State, the film's producer, Chad Oman, and its star, Will Smith, visited CIA headquarters. The in-house magazine notes that Smith observed that it was neat to see how this imagery really works, rather than how you often see it in the movies. Rather ludicrously, the team complimented the agency saying their work was making it safe to attend our movies. Naturally, what is not mentioned is that the film was being produced with the explicit help of the CIA's Office of Public Affairs, and that their entertainment industry liaison, Chase Brandon, was a technical consultant on the film. End quote. And Tom Secker provides a link to the actual news, what's news at CIA, the actual internal CIA newsletter, which has been declassified and is available online. He has a link to that there in the post on spyculture.com. So I hope you'll find that from the links in the documentation section and take a look at it where they talk about Will Smith visiting the CIA. 
And yes, absolutely, the CIA was one of the collaborators on this film and did give the uh, the filmmakers access to see what the intelligence agencies really look like. And that is not uh, that is not classified information. In fact, that's openly br- uh, bragged about by that CIA liaison officer mentioned there in the uh, in the Spy Culture post, Chase Brandon. And you can find out more about Chase Brandon at chasebrandon.com, where he notes, quote, uh, Chase Brandon is a 35-year veteran of the CIA. For 25 years, he served in the agency's elite clandestine service as an undercover covert operations officer, carrying out foreign assignments involving international terrorism, counterinsurgency, global narcotics, global narcotics trafficking, and weapons smuggling. He operated under a range of official and private sector covers, sometimes using alias names and physical disguises, and often collaborating with special operations components of foreign military security or law enforcement components abroad. During intermittent assignments at headquarters, he was also an agency foreign political affairs analyst, presidential briefer, and an instructor in tactical paramilitary and espionage tradecraft disciplines at secret CIA training camps. And then under a section entitled CIA Liaison with the Entertainment Industry, it says, quote, In his last assignment, Mr. Brandon was a senior officer on the CIA's director staff, serving as a public affairs spokesman and the agency's first ever official liaison to the entertainment and publication industries. He was given broad latitude in his overt mission to inform and educate the public about the covert side of the CIA, with the obvious caveat that in the process of working with producers, directors, actors, and writers to present factual, realistic portrayals of the CIA, no actual classified information about sources and methods of sensitive agency tradecraft or technology could appear on screen or in print. Within those parameters, he provided a decade of technical consultation to many feature films and television series such as The Recruit, Some of All Fears, The Born Identity, Alias, and 24, as well as documentary programs to include the Discovery, Learning, and Military Channels. He was also a master of ceremonies for official CIA public events, official on-camera spokesman for selected television news stories, and other public venue activities, end quote. And then it goes on to list his film credits, including, of course, as a uh, advisor on Enemy of the State. So Chase Brandon openly, one of the uh, it links between the CIA and the produ- producers and filmmakers behind Enemy of the State, which is interesting because Enemy of the State is in fact not about the CIA at all, at least not o- officially or overtly. It's uh, really primarily about the NSA. So um, interesting just to see the CIA opening up their headquarters for Will Smith uh, to give him the tour to show what intelligence work looks like, even if it wasn't the NSA specifically. But more about Chase Brandon, who was, as this, uh, as his bio indicates, the first ever official liaison between the CIA and the entertainment and publication industries, which is an interesting little position in and of itself. But um, he has become a little bit noteworthy in recent years for what he's well, spilled the beans about, if you want to take that effort, or uh, at any rate, what he's talked about. And we can find out more from that bastion of truthiness mail online, dailymail.co.uk, which ran a headline on July 9th, 2012. It was a craft that did not come from this planet. CIA agent speaks out on 65th anniversary of Roswell UFO landings. So that's right, this quote-unquote former CIA operative, is uh, is out there talking about the Roswell incident and how it really was an alien craft. So you can read more about that and uh, Chase Brandon's preparation of the public for the alien mass invasion psyop. 
which is interesting in and of itself. But there you go. That's the person who was consulting for the CIA on this film, Enemy of the State, at any rate. So we have consultants up the yin-yang, and it's interesting to see the seeming paradox here, because we have the uh, people like Martin Kaiser, who uh, believed himself at any rate to be uh, sort of uh, hunted down by the, the intelligence agencies for his attempting to blow the whistle on some of their activities back in 1975, and this movie being overtly about a uh, a member of the, the intelligence community, albeit a rogue member, but still a member nonetheless, using the, the apparatus and the machinery and the technology of the intelligence surveillance spy grid state to hunt down an innocent man and uh, to commit crimes like killing a congressman and making it try to try to make it look like a, a heart attack and etc etc some very interesting things being uh, portrayed in this film why would the CIA cooperate with a film like this at all well it's a very good question to ask because it certainly doesn't look like it really lauds the uh, the intelligence community for the wonderful things that it does but I would argue that this is maybe in line with what we saw, for instance, recently, as I noted in episode 274 of the podcast, talking about Richard Clark, talking about how cars can be hacked and how Michael Hastings' car is consistent with a car cyber attack that can be committed by intelligence agencies, including those of the United States. Why would the former counterterrorism czar go out to talk about how the intelligence agencies can hack into cars this day and age and how Michael Hastings may have been conceivably killed as a result of some intelligence agency op. Why would he have done that? Why would the CIA be collaborating with a movie that portrays intelligence agencies as capable of hunting down and killing uh, congressmen and hunting down innocent people, etc., etc.? Why would they be involved in this? Well, one answer has to be that this is, at the very least, a type of intimidation tactic, that this is an overt message to any would-be whistleblowers out there, that if you do this, this is what will become of you, and a at least a, a veiled threat to everyone in the public who's watching, who understands that this is what's really happening to more or less of a, an extent in the real world, that, uh, that you have to watch out, you have to be afraid, and if there is any confusion or any any wondering about whether this was a, a real consideration in the making of this movie once again i would cons- i would urge you to take a look at the making of documentary about this movie where it is made quite explicit and quite overt that this movie is all about getting you to fear big brother something that interested me in this piece was actually giving a fresh eye to the surveillance world today the thing is with movies anything that you see in a movie you you have to believe that we're 10 15 years behind what they actually have i think everyone's felt this at one time or another when like you're doing something and then just all of a sudden you feel like somebody's watching i think that all of us have a bit of paranoia in us about people getting into our our lives and um That's fascinating to people, I think. This picture gives you an inside look into a world that you've never been in before. Uh, How things work, how you can be monitored. So I think that that is a lot of fun uh, for an audience to watch. Well, I hope that all of that gives you some food for thought and some stuff to chew on. So, of course, there will be plenty of links in the show notes for you to follow to explore this at more leisure in, in, in your own time. 
But suffice it to say, I think that this movie is an extremely interesting one to examine from a lot of different perspectives, including the revelation of the method and predictive programming, and and even just as a conversation opener for people who don't understand why, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, is a ridiculous argument. This movie, at any rate, for all of the other programming and whatever else it does, it does at least show that, well, yes, there is a huge problem when you have rogue people within these intelligence agencies using this Orwellian spy grid for their own purposes, their own nefarious ends. So again, a very interesting movie and one that I think is worth revisiting at this time. We'll leave that there for this uh, this month's edition of Film Literature in the New World Order, but just some feedback that I received on last month's edition. And of course, I'm always interested in your feedback. Please send it in through the contact form at CorbettReport.com, and I'll read your comments about Enemy of the State uh, on next week, next month's edition of this podcast series. But uh, last month I received regarding Catcher in the Rye, which we were talking about back in June, I received from Kat this message saying, uh, here's another murder, allegedly, a murderer allegedly carrying the book. Uh, talking about Robert John Bardo and uh, just a link from Wikipedia that mentions Bardo carried a red paperback copy of The Catcher in the Rye when he murdered Schaefer, which he tossed onto the roof of a building as he fled. He insisted that it was coincidental and that he was not emulating Mark David Chapman, who had also carried a copy with him when he shot and killed John Lennon on December 8th, 1980. So, again, just one more killer who happened to have catcher in the rye in his possession at the time of his murder so uh just something else to look into so thank you cat for bringing that to our attention all right we'll wrap things up there once again this has been film literature in the new world order which comes out the third monday of every month so next month you can look forward to and hopefully get ready for a conversation about uh, lord of the rings we're going to leave that there and once again all of the links are in the show notes thank you again for listening to another edition of the corbett report the people can leave the theater and look up in the sky and not be sure whether or not Big Brother is watching, then we've succeeded.